welcome adventurer to the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a show that uses your experiences and opinions to discuss board games and the gaming community. Join the heroes as they conquer perils such as meeples, cards, and miniatures, all in an effort to level up. You're listening to the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Welcome, adventurers, to episode 67 of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. My name's Patrick. Hey, King Scott here. And today we've got an episode packed full of games. Recent plays including Cuphead, Project L, and Tapestry. Then we're going to give the 8-bit breakdown to today's review game, Ten Penny Parks. Yes, indeed. And we've got Archmage Andrew at the Academy to learn a little history and game. Scott, we've got Gen Con on the horizon, so we set aside some games that we're all amped up for at the largest board game convention in the States. And then finally, finally, we're going to cap it all off with our top five games of the last ten that we reviewed. Well... Since I'm going to be part of the Gen Kant contingency here, I'm still going to stick out my (laughs) games that I'm looking forward to to Gen Con. And luckily, I have some people going Mm -hmm. that might pick things up for me. But yes, Indeed Adventures, we've got a big one today. Oh, yeah. And I just got to say, and I think I can speak for Patrick as well. We're thrilled to be part of your day today. Yes, we are. But Scott, I'll tell you what I was thrilled about. What was that? You know, that was our biggest meetup yet. I don't know if I noticed that it was the biggest one ever, but it was just so well done, and we had such a great time playing games that I didn't even have a chance to really look at how many people were there. Oh, it was amazing. So I got there early, and I'm setting up. Well, I got there the night before and started setting things up, because, man, we this... We never know with our meetups, adventures, whenever we have a meetup, it can range anywhere from like 18 people to like 30, right? This one had like 44. I think it was 44 tickets that we gave out wow. for the giveaway. Well, 42. And then you and me, we didn't take a ticket. Neither did Nikki. But uh, the, the vault was run by Addie. She was holding down the fort, getting drinks out, chips out, snacks out. We had food available. Largest meetup yet. Five giveaways. Tons of new faces. Telling you what, man, I set up like six tables and then people keep coming in. I was like, Addy, we need a table, quick. And then another four people come, Addy, we need another table. So front of the store, middle of the store, back of the store, there were games going on everywhere. What an amazing meetup that was. Yeah, and I looked across the parking lot. Now, adventurers, just to give you an idea here, this is in like an annex of a mall where we were. Yeah, like one of those the outlets. The mall itself. It's one that was very popular, but a couple of the anchor stores have left. It's gone the way of most malls, yeah. Yeah, so in order to kind of pick up business, they put a casino in there. So (laughs) It used to be a bod Todd. (laughs) I don't know if you had gone over there to do this or not, but they had level up plastered all over everything there. On the big screens there, there was level up doing this. There was level up all around the doors. I'm thinking, wow, Patrick pulled out all the stuff for this. <laughs> right, right. Now, you know what? I was at the vault the night before setting up, and I looked across the lot, and I saw that. I was like, well, this was meant to be. Uh, and I can't imagine anybody's <laughs> going to be like, no way. These guys got the casino. They're bigger than we thought. Yeah, those guys, Apparently, it's like Atari's 50th anniversary, so they have all kinds of like – I guess, games that are associated with Atari. I don't know if it's gambling games or just like you can go in and play them or if they have tournaments, whatever they're doing. It did indeed say level up with like our colors too, the dark blue and the the pale orange-ish. It's like, huh. (laughs) 
It oh, was how very, very cool to see that. Thank you to everyone who came out to the meetup. If you're in the Pittsburgh area, keep your ears and eyes open. It's not going to be another one until probably late October. What with Scott having the Renaissance Festival coming up, you yep. get to be the king for real. Scott, we're not really a news and Kickstarter show, but there's just too much to not talk about. So I'm going to just hammer out the list. That ready? is true. Return yes, to Dark yes. Tower. It's getting a reprint. It's coming back to crowdfunding. So you're going to be able to get Return to Dark Tower and all those expansion-y goodness Moonrakers, it funded instantly, like instantly. Awesome. And it made me realize we probably should have provided a quote so that our name would have been on it, but oh well, you live and you learn. <laughs> Ivion is going to launch on August 7th. Just a reminder, we've got August 7th. Also, Uthia, this one's coming back to crowdfunding as of July 26th. So by the time this airs, it's it's back on there. So I just wanted to highlight Uthia for a moment. This is a game from Dia, D-I-E-A Studios, that they they relaunched it back in like March or April. They Mm -hmm. had half a million dollars, half a million dollars raised, and then they canceled. They just straight up canceled. Oh, wow. I was trying to find out, is it because of money? Did they need 1.5 million? What was the deal? And it almost sounds like, well, there was something behind the scenes, like somebody left the company. Something happened. They canceled. But you know who picked it up? Steamforged Games, who recently sent us uh, God Tear. They sent us Horizon Zero Dawn. Steamforged Games saw that opportunity, picked it up, and it is back on Kickstarter. Yudi is apparently like a Diablo-style – like so many games call themselves, oh, it's a tabletop board game RPG. And I just have – that can mean so many things. Like you know it's going to be a dungeon crawl. (laughs) You know it's going to have leveling up your characters and items and treasures. Uh, I don't know. We'll see. I I always – I get it in my head that like I'm going to play this thing all the time. But then anytime I get one, it's like I play it twice and I'm like, oh, I could sell this for like what I paid into it. Yeah, I don't see me playing this anymore and I sell it. But mm-hmm. something's telling me you the is, you know, it's uh, it's tapping me on the shoulder. I might give that one a whirl. Aquamarine on the list. This comes from the makers yes, of yes. Voyages that you talked about not too long ago. What's Aquamarine? Yeah, well, basically with Voyages, you were pirates or merchants, and it was a great solo roll-and-write type of game. Now then, they're coming out with one called Aquamarine. Aquamarine, you're actually going underwater now. So now you're going to explore the world underwater. Oh. It really looks cool. I didn't see many details on it, but I know how much fun I had playing Voyages. This one here... Hands down, I'm going to do it. And like the the pledge for it's like five bucks. So <laughs> well. it's not even that much. And you can print them out and print out as many as you want. You can laminate them, use dry erase markers, play it over and over and over. There's a lot of replayability and a lot of great things. The nice thing with this is, now I'm not one to tell people how to... Uh, shirk their duties at work but um this is one you could fit in a portfolio while you're at a meeting and (laughs) easily play that and no one knows anything that's going on it just looks like you're really busy taking notes meanwhile you're scavenging the high seas going all over the place pillaging islands great stuff there check out aquamarine on kickstarter Maybe not on crowdfunding, but Dune Imperium has another expansion announced, the Immortality Expansion from BGG. The Benny Tlalex, you know the show better than the story, but what what is that? (laughs) I believe it's Tiliax advance their own agenda by trading in genetic innovations. Will you hire face dancer spies of unmatched skill, regrow damaged tissues and organs, 
or dare to employ restored to life as goalless. Make shadowy deals as a Tiliexu to harvest genetic specimens, unlock the potential of scientific research, graph cards together to empower your agents. Shut up and take my money. Yeah, you know what? I, I'm um, listening to what you're saying about this, and I got to tell you, Scott, I didn't understand a single word of what any of that meant. <laughs> but, but it's doing Imperium, and right now they're one for one on Slam Dunks for expansion. So yeah, we'll give this a whirl. I still absolutely love Dune Imperium. I love the rise of Ix. Just getting more to add on to this game, I cannot wait. This has just all the markings to really turn into an epic game as it gets bigger and meatier each time that they add something else to it. You know, I'm not going to lie. If they added a McDoon expansion where you had to, like, spread your fast food hamburger restaurants throughout the Dune universe and open them up, I would buy it. Anything they do at this point, they've got my trust. All I know is this may be turning into my Twilight Imperium. Ooh. Well, that – okay. Scott, we were talking about doing a Seven Wonders tournament, hopefully at the end of July, and well, that time's just about coming past by the time this episode airs. You've got the Renaissance Festival coming up, Adventures. We still want to do that. The The dirty secret is we're, we're busy people, and I understand we've got to yep. figure out how to use Discord better than we currently know how to do. We're going to look into that, and hopefully before the end of the year, get a Seven Wonders tournament. Uh, when it happens, I'm thinking it's like... A free thing, just spend some time with us in the Discord, chatting, and okay, you two, you're up, you gotta play a game, quick game, they come back, and spend a Saturday afternoon with Level Up, do a tournament, and get your name on the show for being awesome if you win, right? It's a meetup without having to go anywhere. Well, I know you want to talk Spiel to Sharis Winner and Kenner Spiel. However, before we get to that, Adventures, I want to let you know Gen Con, Friday from 10 to 2 and Sunday 10 to 1, I'm going to be with Board Game Tables. Now, I've talked about QE in the past. Scott, you mentioned Kabuto Sumo. They do Mountain Ghost, Ghost of Christmas, bunch of other games. Come play with me. Friday, 10 to 2. Sunday, 10 to 1. I'm going to be at the Board Game Tables booth. They usually have a big area with a bunch of tables where you can come up and learn, play a round or two. I'm going to be there. Look for the look for the, <laughs> the dad bod in a level up hat. That's going to be me. Also on Saturday, meet up with me at Brotherwise Games, their booth from 3 to 5 to learn how to play their upcoming Kickstarter game, Empire's End. Scott, I was chatting with Chris. I was like, dude, you know I'm going to be back. Just let me announce it on the show so I can show people how to play this thing. <laughs> we raved about it after after Origins. I'm stoked to play it again. And Adventures, I want to show you. So Saturday, 3 to 5 at Gen Con, get over to Brotherwise Games booth. Again, dad bod, level up hat. That's me. <laughs> I'm really jealous of you for being able to do this. One, working with Brotherwise with Empires in. And two, I got to say, board game tables, you see them with all their bags and all their great things to carry your games in. And yet very but rarely with have, tables. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but their games that they have are really great games. Now, I, I, we talked about Kabuto Sumo, but another one they have is Ghosts of Christmas. It's a trick-taking game. Mm -hmm. That game is absolutely fabulous it's a quick little trick-taking game there's a twist in it now i'm not going to say what it is you got to go play the game you got to go demo it but that twist in that game turns the entire game on its ear and makes it such a great experience absolutely scott tell me about spieldish yaris they like to give out awards to games so this year they did it again so the spieldish Jar this year goes to cascadia now i know we've talked about it before it's a fine game. Yeah, it's a great game. We liked game. it. We like Cascadia. But being game of the year, 
I don't know. It it just never really scratched me as being something good. Now I'm Whoa, gonna say it never scratched you as being something good. <laughs> that good, I mean. The, oh, I was gonna but, say um, Scott King. But I want to go back and I want to revisit Cascadia. See if I can change my mind as to how I feel about this game. Yeah, I'll give it another whirl. I'm with you. My my initial impressions were okay. It functions. It's all right. But like people are like, oh, the artwork. There's five pieces of artwork in the whole game. Uh, it's not bad. It's not bad. I just to me it felt very simple. Like there's not a whole lot on the bones here. But mm-hmm. that was only after a couple plays. So I know Jason has a copy. Maybe we'll uh, we'll get together with him and. And give it another world. What won the Kenner Spiel? The Kenner Spiel de Jar was Living Forest. Okay. And it really has a great, fun look to it. Yeah. There's so many pieces to this. It's one of those ones that tick off all the boxes of what's going to be a fun game. And for Kenner Spiel de Jar, that's what you want. You want to have a fun game with the family. And this one ticks all those boxes. Yeah, I think it's well worth it. Oh, we could keep going on about the uh, the spiel, but let's be honest, every show does their spiel, spiel. So yeah. <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. Cascadia wins the spiel as Jaris, and the Kenner spiel goes to Living Forest. Scott, let's talk about what we've been playing lately. I've got two, you've got one, so how about I kick this one off today? Batter up. Well, I recently went on an adventure to a magical land filled with wonderful food, beverage, uh-huh. and merry uh-huh. company. A place Aww. with more games than any board game store I've ever been to. The magical land of Nikki's Basement. That sounds like a horror movie. <laughs> no, it's wonderful. Scott, I was there just a couple weeks ago and I got the chance to play Cuphead, the fast rolling dice game. This one comes from the op designed by Pat. Did I just say the op? <laughs> Well, whatever. Designed by Patrick Marino, who did Court of the Dead, a game that I actually really, really like. So I was anxious to figure out what is this all about, even though I have reservations when a game is pitched as a, quote, fast rolling dice game. Actually, it's kind of funny I mentioned that because the ops sent us, they sent us the thing, they sent us a couple of games. And when they were like, hey, you guys can, you know, if if there's another game or two that you guys want to pick. You remember I said to you, Scott, if you see something on here you want, let me know so I can submit. And Well, Cuphead was one of the options. And I was like, yeah, no. <laughs> so, do I regret it? Well, let's find out. Uh, you know, I don't typically play video games that came out after 1998, with the exception, of course, of Borderlands. So, my experience with the Cuphead video game is basically zero. I didn't know it was based on a video game until I heard other people say that. Uh, it's apparently a run-and-gun video game with a heavy focus on boss battles with art reminiscent of 1930s comics. I love it. So what exactly is happening in Cuphead? Scott, it's really simple. Each player gets a player board, and you choose a boss to fight. Now, the bosses, they're each going to have their own tuck box within the board game box. And within the tuck box, you'll find waves of henchmen that you need to defeat in rounds leading up to that final boss. So how do we go about doing it? You're actually going to lay out henchmen cards on a central board. And in our game, that meant three cards. And each of them has one or two die symbols at the bottom of the card. And we need to roll those symbols in order to not take damage from that particular baddie. So if the first card has a single step symbol and a hand slap symbol, well, I need to roll those two symbols on my dice and place them onto those slots on my personal player board. After getting those results for the first baddie, I can start fulfilling the needs of the second card and so on until I've fulfilled the needs of all three. And once I've fulfilled the sure. requirements of the bad guy, I can start allocating another symbol, the finger gun. And it's actually like a little beep like gloved 
you know, like Goofy or Mickey early. It's, it's a gun. Basically dealing them damage. And here's the catch. Each player around the table, they have their own six dice. And they're all rolling to meet the requirements on these henchman cards. But you get just 20 seconds to do so. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and the timer is kept by a companion app. For those of us who don't mind in appropriately limited app implementation, Scott, I'm going to start a round right now. Okay, you ready? All right. A brawl is surely brewing. Okay, uh, we got a hand slap, uh, single foot, single foot. Okay, yeah, I can put that one here. Uh, double foot, double, uh, two double feet. We can put one there. I can't put one over there yet. Do I have one? No, okay, jeez. Uh, okay, diamond, diamond won't work. Finger gun, I can put that on my first one. Perfect. We got uh, the, the head, perfect. Head can go here. Hand slap, got the hand slap, perfect. Oh, come on, come on, come on, we need to find a foot. We need to get a foot. Come on, come on, come on, come on. <laughs> <laughs> so after the timer's up, each player takes a damage from each henchman card that they did not fulfill. Then the henchmen right. are dealt damage from the players who got that finger gun symbol added on in order to kill the cards right. and get some rewards. All the while, the henchmen are being dealt damage. You're also allocating damage to that boss card at the top of the central board. And when defeated, you go on to the next boss within your tuck box. Boy, that's hard to say. Until eventually yes. you face off against the final boss and win or lose the game based on whether or not you can defeat said final boss. All right. For some reason, Cuphead sticks out in my mind, and it had very unique artwork. What was the artwork like in this? I, you know what? It's got, they say, that 1930s style, that charm, almost like a, a an early, early cartoon. Art and components are a nice touch in this game. Uh, I thought that that art gave a, a bit of theme and flavor. And you couple that with, like, the old-timey music uh, for, from oh, the app, right. right? Without those elements, the game would feel kind of tedious, I think. There, there's a good mm -hmm. bit of thematic flavoring and, honestly, kept me engaged with the spirit of the game. Is the game overly simple, though? Well, mechanically, yeah, actually, it, it is quite simple. But given the time restraint, it's a lot of fun. And, uh, Scott, I didn't get into all the details there. Uh, let's point out, your dice are all white except for one black die. And in the playthrough that we had, if you rolled the finger gun on the black die, it dealt double damage. And there's also right. rewards for finishing off henchmen, ways to heal up your teammates. There are enough little added elements to the game beyond the frantic die rolling that it actually has some legs. Now, that doesn't mean that this is going to be a – this isn't like – Cuphead is not a strategically deep game. Right, but right. there's enough added on that it's not a throwaway either. It's it's not just a it's not a time killing activity. All right, now here's the whole thing with you. You are, I'm one that I get games and they just add to my collection. Mm -hmm. You get games, you play them, and then boom, they're out the door. So I'm on. You looking yep. to buy this one? I just might. So I looked what? at, yeah, I, I act, I just, well, you know what I might do is contact the op and be like, hey, we should have asked for this one. <laughs> Scott, I looked at BGG to see what some of the comments were from the community, and there's virtually no complaints for the gameplay in Cuphead. But there was one complaint that was coming up a bit in the low ratings, and it was kind of consistent. Unfortunately, that complaint was the price. I think MSRP. I went to the op. I looked it up, and the op has it for $59.99. Now, oh. that's a lot. Yeah, considering that you can get brass, you can get Merchants of the Dark Road. Like, there's – heck, you can almost get Ark Nova for about the same price. Yes. 
That said, it probably means that if you tire of the game, you can probably sell it for a good chunk of that money back. Like things tend to hold there. You're not going to find Cuphead for 10 bucks from somebody that bought right. it for 60, right? So we always say price is one thing, value subjective. To me, I got a great first impression and honestly a pleasant surprise from Cuphead, the fast rolling dice game. That is pretty awesome. I'm looking at some of the artwork here and it is just absolutely adorable. <laughs> What's the best part about playing a board game? The camaraderie with friends? The immersion into the game's themes? The strategic thinking it takes to win? At Level Up, we believe the best part of the board game is the sweet sound of putting the lid back on the box. That's right, the sensational vibrant frequency caused by four walls of glossy, airtight cardboard being rubbed against another four. This episode's feature, Spirit Island from Greater Than Games. Now, I love Spirit Island, and I recently even downloaded the app and started playing on my phone. But something was missing. Something that could only happen when playing the physical copy, then putting the box away. Oh, yes. That's the satisfaction I want after a long, complex game. Something to help me unwind. You might not need to hear it again, but I do. Yeah. It's drawn out. It takes effort and coordination, much like the game it encapsulates. One more time, but open up your heart and feel it. Remember, if your game doesn't serenade you when you complete it, you didn't really even play. Thank you so much for your time today. I hope this experience provides enrichment for your future gaming experiences. Adventurers. <laughs> in this world of podcasts, you have a wide variety of choices to make in your life. There are those with really interesting deep delving questions and outlooks of the games that are going on in this world mm -hmm. and the strategies to play said games. <laughs> and then you have <laughs> us. For those that are still here with us, thank you so much for dealing with us. And hopefully we're going to have a lot more of um, top brow humor such as that. Scott, did I see you play a tapestry at the meetup? Is that your name? I yes, see tapestry on did. the list. I saw it broken out at the meetup. Tell us, uh, this was infamously of at our one year episode, one year in, I think it was episode 40, 39 or 40. We did our, here's oh, our favorite yeah. games that we reviewed this year. And your number one was tapestry. Tell us all about your experience with it. This go. Well, yes, at the meetup, I got a chance to play tapestry and we all know it. It comes from Stonemaier Games, designed by Jamie Stagmeyer. This is a civilization type of game. Now, I've been busy right now with a lot of work, traveling, with Renaissance Festival. I haven't had the time to sit down and really dig into a game. Mm -hmm. So that is where this one just pops right into that sweet spot. This is one I've played a lot. So you go into it, you know the rules. It's a deep game. You can really get your hands dirty and dig into it and just start playing. And that's what happened. We sat down. We started playing. Truth be told, I did horrible. Uh, I think I lost. <laughs> Scott, were they all but new to again, tapestry? 
well, the guy one is brand new to it. He's never played it before, and he just blew us all out. Oh, boy. It was just something fun to get into this game and building your land whenever you're putting the different buildings out there and the futuristic buildings, and you're taking your little huts off your resource management and putting those in different places. Tapestry is one of those games that are like a nice warm blanket. Mm-hmm. Whenever you don't have time, but you still want to get a, a, a hefty game in, this one is just a perfect fit for that. Now, granted, it was at the meetup, so there was a lot of interruptions going on. So my mind wasn't strictly focused on the game. And I'm not making that as an excuse. I'm just bad at games at times. But... um. You're trying to increase your level in technology or exploration, all these different bands that you're trying to hit on, on the four sides of the board. You're trying to go out and explore the land in the middle of the board. There's so much great things going on here. And I know a lot of people have played this game. And if you haven't, please take a look at it. It is such a great game. And this was one that... I think will be in my collection for a very long time. I'll tell you what you do while you're on the road and working over the next couple of months. It's on BGA. We had the chance to play this one with Jesse yes. not that long ago. We did a couple rounds on BGA, learned a whole lot about the timing with that central location. It's like, well, now I can take it. And uh, and if he tries to uh, – or no, no, it was – he took it and I was like, oh, this is so – this is wonderful. I get to take it back. So I, I – we both could have taken the central spot. Right. I waited. I was like, you know what? He's going to take it, and then I'm going to topple his pillar, and then I'll control it at the end of the game. There you go. And I learned about how effective those trap cards are. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Because he said, no, you ain't taking it. I'm holding it, and now there's two pillars on here. There's nothing anybody can do about it. The big thing about this is you look at it, and you see the amount of stuff that's in this, and all the different symbols on the board, and all this, all that. The rule book is for pages. Yeah, most of what you need to know is on the player aid. Now, they're big player aids. Now, let's, yes. let's not mislead. There, there's a lot of symbology on each of the tracks. But there's not a lot of fiddly rules in order to use it. Right. So everything's very simple. Take a look at the symbol, look on the board, boom, there you go. That's what it is. But it's not tied down with a lot of difficult rules where if this happens, then this happens. But then if this happens before that, then you have to do this. It's very well streamlined. You can tell there was a lot of thought that went into this game. I think one of my favorite parts of Tapestry is, you know, I like to say, oh, games need to make me feel clever and powerful. And I'll I'll repeat that. That's the hallmark to me of a great game. Mm -hmm. Do I feel smart and unique? And do I feel like I'm doing something cool, right? Tapestry, aside from a handful of turns early on where it's like, okay, I just, I I put a building. I get to put a building into into my city, which is kind of a clever you know, I do get to feel clever when I do that. I'm increasing right. my income and I get to work with that puzzle that is my city mat. But then eventually you start to get those moments where you do, in fact, feel powerful, be it getting to trigger something at the top end of a track, like the the science track. There's, I think it's science or technology where it's like you get to do this and then move up on another track and you move up on that other track. And it's like you get to play a tapestry card from your hand for free and you get to start. Not often, but you get to start chaining some things together. Sometimes you have a tapestry card that you can work with and plan ahead. The game gives you every turn a little, I guess, a dopamine hit where like you're getting to do something 
that matters. And you get to do it repeatedly, even on your income term, when you're just getting your income and playing a new tapestry card. It's like, whoa, look at me. Look at what I'm doing. That's cool. That's what tapestry captures for me. That's a great way of looking at it, that dopamine hit. And that's true because that's what you want to do. Whenever you're playing a game, you want to feel good whenever you're playing a game. You want to have fun when you're doing Bingo. it. And this one definitely encompasses that. One of the most popular games in the hobby and the oldest in the BGG Top 100 is Crokinole. And at Level Up, we're big fans. Oh, yeah. Most of our meetups have a Crokinole board set up and ready for action. Our choice for anything and everything Crokinole is Brown Castle Games. Brown Castle is a family-owned company that produces boards of unmatched quality. With a circular frame, a variety of hardware veneer playing surfaces, and a professional edge banding, let me tell you, these boards stand out. Oh, no doubt, Scott. And along with your board, Brown Castle has the best Crokinole accessories I have ever seen. The discs, the holders, the carrying case, they make the best. Yes, they do. Adventurers, you know our style. When we partner with someone, it's to get savings for you. Exclusively mm -hmm. for adventurers, get 5% off anything and everything from Brown Castle Games. The boards, cases, accessories, you name it. Get 5% off with promo code LEVEL5. L-E-V-E-L, -E -E the number 5, all caps, no spaces. Find it all at www.browncastlegames.com. Designed by Michael McKez, Jan Sukel, and Adam Spanel from 2020 Board Cubator Games. Scott, I recently had Project L on the table. This is an abstract oh. game for one to four players. It plays in about 30 minutes. And I think this is so easy to explain that I can teach it to you right now. Okay. Think of oh. Tetris shapes. All right. You have tiny right. little acrylic pieces that look like Tetris shapes. Got it. Also, you know how a square in Tetris is like four blocks put together to make one large block? Exactly, yes. Okay, well, Project L starts with a tiny one-block piece, and then a two-block piece, and then a three-block corner piece, kind of like an L in Tetris and so on. And these are all grouped by shape and available in the middle of the table. Okay, so we got a game all with right. a whole bunch of acrylic shapes. Now, everyone starts the game with a basic one-block piece and a basic two-block piece. So far, so good? Got it. All right. Yep. So we got market of four simple puzzles and four big puzzles in the middle of the table that players have to choose from. So on your turn, you get three actions and they are as follows. You may take a simple one block piece. You Copy may that. upgrade one of your pieces into one larger. So if you have a three Copy block that. piece, you can upgrade it. Okay. You may take a puzzle from the center market, be it a simple or complicated puzzle. All right. You may place a piece on a puzzle or finally you may Take a master action, which allows you to place up to one piece from your collection onto each one of the puzzles that you have. Basically, uh, uh, getting to place multiples at a time. So what are the puzzles? Think of it like a card that is inset that has some amount of space that you need to fill in with your shapes. Easy, right? All right. Yes. That's it for actions. Now, the trick is oh. that once you place a piece on one of your puzzles, it can't be moved. And when you complete a puzzle, it has a tile shown in the corner that you get to collect one of that tile type, and the puzzle goes into your score pile. The game ends when the market of difficult puzzles is empty. Everyone will get All one right. more round, and then the game is officially over. You tally up the scores listed on your completed puzzles, lose points for incomplete puzzles, and the high score wins. 
if I wanted to, couldn't I just take the different puzzles and just rush and get done quicker than everyone else and finish the game? Kind of, but no. Like, you're allowed – there's a limit. Okay, so you're allowed to have four incomplete puzzles at a time. All right, all so right. the game ends whenever all the difficult puzzles are out. If you have a lead, you can't just be, take a difficult puzzle, take a difficult puzzle. You can't just rush it that way. You're allowed right, four right. incomplete at a time. So that's sort of how they keep that in check. All right. So that seems fair enough there. Now, this is something you say with the acrylic pieces mm-hmm. and the puzzle boards. Is this just something very simple? What are the components like? Is this simple as far as the gameplay? Yes. The components, are they simple? No. The components are sleek. Uh, oh. Like I said, you've got the inset boards for the puzzles. You've got oh, wow. those acrylic or uh, or plastic, whatever they are, piece. They're like that translute. Like if you hold them up to light, they glimmer a bit. Right? Yes, yes. And it's all in a sleek package. The only drawback to the, the quality of the oh, components of the game. Oh, I was waiting game, for a drawback. Of course, of course. The gameplay, you would expect it to be a $20 or $30 game. It's challenging, but it's a simple enough game. I think the game's hard to find for under like 50 bucks. So mm. obviously that's going to mean something different from one person to the next. But right, right. the components are top notch. Where you said like with Cuphead, the price was yeah, a little bit off, but you're willing to pay a higher price for nice components. Right. And let's not brush aside the gameplay here. It, I like that it's challenging and quick. Like, you have this pressure to play efficiently because it's basically a race to finish puzzles. Right. And you don't want to waste any actions. I tell you, what, I found out real quick. <laughs> we played this one. and The best way to get better pieces is to complete puzzles for the piece reward. I initially – Wait, 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 like, wait, okay. wait, wait, wait. That sounded like a tongue twister there. Yeah, well, yeah. No. <laughs> Note to adventurers, we had to retake that four times because I can't say it all. <laughs> Scott, I think initially, uh, though the game – I initially thought that this was going to be a game where I'm spending actions acquiring pieces and upgrading them. But it is definitely rewarding to start with some puzzles, some simple puzzles, right? And complete them quick and get your better pieces that way. Because I'm mm. like, okay, I'll take a I'll take a puzzle piece. And other people are like, I'll place here to complete this puzzle and gain this piece. And then on my turn, I'm like, I'll take a puzzle piece. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'll place my piece here and upgrade this puzzle to get this piece. And I'm like, I will upgrade one piece. <laughs> it was terrible. It took me a moment to realize, wait a minute. You shouldn't be churning your actions to upgrade your pieces. You should be efficiently playing your pieces to get the rewards on the cards. That's the way that you – so needless to say, I got blown out. But it's a shorter game. It's easy to teach. It's got thinky gameplay. And I could see breaking this out after a meal with the in-laws. I could see this at a table on game day with my hardcore gamer friends. It's not going to get anyone laughing out loud. It's not cutesy. It's just a solid core that's well-produced. And frankly, I think most folks are going to enjoy Project L. That is awesome. That sounds really great. So Project L. Is he on the payroll yet? Yeah, he, uh, (laughs) no, (laughs) I got nothing. Scott, it's time for the top 100 update. Prime movers, there is but one. Sleeping Gods moves up four spots to number 90. Falling Stars, games that fell more than one spot. There's just one, Kingdom Death Monster, Ooh. down two to number 55. We mentioned that one not too long ago. Yes. So Kingdom Death Monster on the decline. Hmm. 
<laughs> New highest peaks. This is where we get the meat of our talk today. Barrage is up to number 37, higher than it's ever been. The crew mission Deep Sea keeps climbing, number 54. Paladins of the West Kingdom, number 63. Cascadia was at 69 dudes last time, and I said, oh, it's doing that slow climb, but I think it's going to pick up now oh, yeah. with your Spiel des Jahres announcement. It is at number 67. Sleeping Gods, as we mentioned, at number 90. Oh, Backtrack on Mars is at number 50, and Pandemic Legacy Season 0, continuing the climb, is at number 60. Good stuff. Good stuff indeed. No birthdays today. That's it for the top 100. So that means it's more goodness we can talk about. Well, that was all good. Those are top 100 goodnesses. But there's also goodnesses that isn't in the top 100. All right, you do the walkthrough. What are we talking about today, Scott? Today, we are talking about a new game from Thunderworks Games, Ten Penny Parks. Hey, adventurers. It's time for us to take a look at a review game today, Ten Penny Parks, designed by Nate Leinhardt and released by Thunderworks Games in 2022. Tenpenny Parks takes place over five rounds. During the game, you'll be collecting income, building rides, expanding and clearing your parkland, and advertising your awesome park. So, how does one do this? Well, come along, let me tell you. Each person will get a park board to build on, wooden trees to cover the tree spots on their board, three meeples, $7, and three markers for the thrill, awe, and joy tracks. The game is split up into five actions per round. The first one is the income phase. This is where you collect income. Look at your rides and your concession stands. Wherever there is a dollar sign, you collect that much money to build your park each turn. The next phase, which is the biggest one, is the actions phase. This is the time where you place your meeples on the board to do certain things. The rondelle, or the circus tent, is divided up into 10 spots. Six of these spots will have a stack of cards that are the rides you can build. You will place your meeple by the circus tent, and where you do, there could be a bonus or a penalty that you have to pay or get removed from the price of the ride. After you pay the price to the bank, you get the card and the matching board piece to play on your park card. These will be Tetris-like shapes that you must have the room for before you buy them. Once the tile is placed, if there are symbols that match the awe, thrill, and joy tracks, move your marker up those tracks. Too many times, I'll be honest, I have a great idea, but I haven't removed the trees or expanded in order to accommodate the rod. Also, if you cover a spot with money, you receive that money right away, whether it's money or movement on the emotion tracks. The other four spaces are employees you can interact with. The banker will give you $2.00. The arborist will remove two trees for free. The contractor will sell you a concession stand for free. And trust me, concession stands can make or break a player's game. Finally is the realtor who, for $3, will give you a 2x7 expansion to your park. After all the meeples are placed, you now come to the bonus phase. The player that is out in front on the thrill track can either get a victory point or move back one spot and get an extra worker for the next round. Yep, four turns instead of three. The person that is in front on the odd track can get a point or move back one space and steal the first turn marker. Finally, on the joy track, a person can get a point or move back one space and get three bucks. 
The second place player on all of these gets a victory point. The next phase is the part I always mess up. Each month, there is a cost on all the rides that you can pay to advertise your rides and get victory points. You can do this to any or all of your rides each month, but be sure to not be me and make sure you have enough money to do this. The final stage is the cleanup phase, and that is where you refresh the concession stand market, return all meeples to the players, advance the month, and rotate the circus tent. This last part is a big thing. The person holding the first player marker can rotate the tent as many spaces as they wish. It just can't be in the same place as it was the last time. Want that big ride to rake in all the emotions and victory points? Now's your time to set the board to help you out. Well, this is a quick look at Tenpenny Parks. We've had a chance to play it, and let's go back and hear what Patrick has to say about it. Tenpenny Parks from Thunderworks Games. Trumpet sound. Mayor Tenpenny's shovel breaks ground and the race is on. You have five months to transform the humble town of Fairview into the home of the world's greatest theme parks. Gather your team of bankers, realtors, contractors, builders, and arborists. Construct rides through the Stone Age, the American Old West, the Age of Fantasy, the cosmos of space, and the depths of the sea. Inspire thrill, awe, and joy in your guests to earn their tickets. For whoever attracts the most visitors at the end of the race will be awarded Fairview's Golden Key. Thank you, King, for the walkthrough of today's review game, Ten Penny Parks Adventures. As you know, we like to break down our games in the 8-bit breakdown. We're going to look at eight facets of this game and tell you everything that we thought about it, finishing it all off with was it fun and who's going to like it. Number one, bit number one, Scott, the art and components. The floor is yours. All right. The art and components, this is what drew me into this game to begin with. You have a board with a ton of artwork on it, and it's great-looking artwork. You have a carnival tent right in the center of this board, like a 3D thing you have to build, so it looked, it has a great appearance on there. Uh-huh. You have the cards with the rides where you're buying the different cards to build the rides into your park. And you know what? They're all unique, too, like the fantasy oh, God, attractions. Yes. They were green. They had their own flavor. Deep-sea attractions were different in their mm-hmm. own way. And the artwork is great. It reminded me kind of of the artwork from the Indiana Jones movies, from the posters. Very detailed artwork. And the one thing that's absolutely wonderful is whenever you have your ride cards and you decide to advertise it, you flip it over. And on the other side is like this advertising poster for that ride with this vintage retro looking artwork. Really looks great. The money is thick little cardboard things. The money feels great. I love that. The only thing that I thought was a little bit odd, the meeples that you play with when you're putting your workers out are really like an odd size. Uh, They're not your traditional meeple. Yeah, they're much bigger than what you would expect them to be. They're kind of big and clunky. That was just a little bit that didn't seem like it fit in with the game. But other than that, I mean, everything was just had a great look to it. What did you think about it? 
Well, nothing was disappointing, that's for sure. And if anything, there were nice bonuses all throughout. You mentioned that thick, chunky, dollar bill-like oh, yes. money, which that's a dumb thing to gravitate towards, but I loved it. Mm-hmm. You know, it could have just been cardboard coins and it'd be like, well, this is like we've seen a billion times before, but I actually really liked their money. Uh, some of the nice additions that add some flavor, of course, that tent, but the wooden trees on your board, it gave just yes. enough of a visual that you kind of felt like you're looking down on your park from a helicopter or something. I liked the art and components. And for that matter, the iconography in the game, it's easy to understand, mm-hmm. right? No one's going to be like, oh my goodness, there's so many symbols. There was almost no rulebook checking, and I appreciate that. Yes, yes. You have a nice little player aid card that has everything on there that you need. So if there is any question, take a glance at that. You're good to go. Bit number two, the theme and immersion of the game. Scott, we got a worker placement game that's all about building a theme park. Now, I'm one that usually gets sucked in. You know this. You say it all the time. Oh, Patrick, you you start trying to get your brain into the the min-maxing and whatnot. I get into the strategy first and the theme second. And, Mm -hmm. And I think that maybe we're opposites in that. You like a little bit more of the flavor of the game and then never mind the strategy. I want to play my game within, right? And that's fine. Often with worker placement games, I don't get sucked in at all because there is a lot to think about. But Tenpenny was really thematic. You've got that overhead visual of your park and the trees within. The thinking part of the tile placement, it can be hindered by where the trees are. So you have to consider cutting them down. And that felt like I wasn't just placing a shape but I was manipulating my landscape, my acreage for building out my park. To me, that was a good emulation of park planning. The joy and the excitement to set those tracks at the bottom, they score at the end of the round. So it's a means of feeling like you're competing with the other players. Mm -hmm. And what it does is it gives you this like, okay, your park might not be the most exciting, but it is the most joyful. Yes. It does spark joy, what the Marie got. It, you know what it kind of reminded me of? We have a little park uh, out near where you and I live, our our half of Pittsburgh called Idlewild. And I'm telling you what, it is not the most exciting park for riders. They only have like two roller coasters and they're tiny, but it's wonderful for family. Well, at least it once was. Say It's not what it used to be, but it's a charming park. It's, yes. it's going to spark joy. It's not going to be exciting, but it is going to be joyful. Oh, uh, yes. Scott, theme and immersion. What say you? Well, this is something that's very odd here. I've got to disagree with you a little bit. Oh. With this, I never really felt like I was building a park. I felt more in the mechanics of putting the pieces down on my park and moving the trees. And I, well, I got to do this to move the tree and to get this square in there or this L shape in there. There was never a time that I really felt like I was building an amusement park. Now, this is not a bad thing because I thoroughly enjoyed the game for what it was. I more looked on it as just a exercise in tile placement where you need to place things in order to get the most out of everything. Efficiency, worker placement, economics. Yes, yes. So. I was really hoping to feel like I'm I'm building an amusement park because I love Roller Coaster Tycoon, all those kind of things. And I didn't feel it for some reason. But that doesn't mean I didn't like it. I absolutely love this game. Um, oh, you're spoiling things. I want to play this more often. So, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so the theme and immersion, I didn't really feel it as much as just going through the mechanics of it. 
a bit of a juxtaposition. I would have thought I'd have been the one that says, oh, no, I was all about the strategy yes. and that you would be the one that's like, I had on a clown nose the whole time and <laughs> was selling tickets. So what do they have, like the bow tie and the – I was the Scott, carnival is this a complex marker. game? Yeah, let's get to uh, complexity. Bit number three, tell me about the complexity of Tenpenny Parks. The complexity, it's broken down into phases. You do the phase, you get the money. Next phase, you put out your workers. It's not a complex game. Everything is right mm-hmm. there, what you can do. It's really quite simple, which is a nice thing. You don't right. want you to don't have triggers. There. You don't have state-based effects, things like that that you have to bear in mind. Exactly. You don't want to be bogged down by all these extra little intricate rules. You just want to sit down and be able to play this game. And like you said, not have to go back to the rule book over and over and over. Just be able to sit there and play the game and enjoy your time. So yeah, it's not a complex game, but that doesn't mean that there's not complexity to it, which I will hit on in a little bit. Sure thing. Anything you want to add to that? I think you pretty much nailed it. Uh, The game's got five worker placement spots, five card acquisition spots, and you place your shapes when you acquire them. Scott, I'd call this like medium weight, but it's borderline light. It is definitely on the light end of medium Mm -hmm. weight. Yes, yeah, that's a great way of putting it. I'm going to have you talk the rule book. I'll do the learning curve portion of bit number four, the rule book and learning curve. The rule book is very well detailed, very well laid out. Everything goes through, just like I said, you have the little player aids with phase one, phase two, phase three. The rule book follows the same exact thing there. So if there's a little bit that you aren't sure of what happens in a phase, you go to the page there with phase three or phase one income. It'll tell you, boom, 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 exactly what you need to do. And anything that you might overlook or mistake things sometimes, where a lot of times you'll play a game two, three times, and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, wait, we've been playing that wrong. We've been doing this wrong the whole time. They have a great way of putting in those rules in red. So they kind of like looked ahead thinking, this is going to be something they're probably going to forget to do. So let's be sure to highlight it so they know about it. So that was a very nice touch they did in the rule book. Credit to Thunderworks Games. Uh, we've done a few of their games now, and I don't think we've had a bad rule book yet, huh? No, no. Now, what did you think about the learning curve? Well, not a whole lot to say here. Uh, you know, you explained it in about 10 minutes, and I think I understood just about everything that there was to know. Now, if I was a non-gamer, I, it might take a round to grasp mm-hmm. what's going on or to connect the dots on how you score points efficiently. But I think we can also appreciate that this isn't a cutthroat competition or for that matter, it's not a super deep strategic taxing of the brain. Tenpenny Parks is an easy to approach game. And I think that most are going to be able to grasp it right away. Yes. <laughs> Scott BGG has this listed at 14 plus. I think most 10 year olds are going to be able to play it. No problem. I, yeah, if if the 10-year-olds are used to playing games with with their guardians, their adults, their parents, whatever, yeah, there should be absolutely no their problem. Their minions, no. their cronies, their henchmen. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, uh, that leads me to wonder, well, how meaty is this game? Bit number five, we talk about where is the meat? While we're placing workers and drawing good payoff cards, it's certainly the mechanisms being carried out in the game. But at what point does that transition into playing optimally? I think it's in those tracks at the bottom of the board. You don't just need to place a ride for the income bonus and bump up on those tracks. You have to consider which track to compete on, which you can't compete on, or 
if you're already winning on a track, is your lead large enough? Yes. You're also going to have to consider the placement bonuses on your player board and in turn make a decision about how much money you want to dis- that you're going to spend on a ride whose tile is going to work for you. And then you factor in your endgame scoring cards. So there, there are enough variables at play that I think that your very basic engine in the game, yeah, the meat comes from the variables surrounding it and, and not forcing you, but sort of bumping you into playing a certain way. Mm-hmm. It's not a very deep game, but it's not pretending to be. It's a five-round game that I think plays in under an hour, typically. Oh, yes. There aren't multiple layers of meat, but that's okay. That's not what it's trying to be. Three workers per turn, five turns, 15 actions, make the best of it. That's the meat of Ten Penny Parks. In my mind, what do you think? Well, in my mind, it's completely different. Um, oh. <laughs> I love when this happens. After you build a ride, you can advertise a ride. That is going mm-hmm. to be paying X amount of money in order to get X amount of points. Right. So one of the things here that's quite interesting is you can advertise each ride whenever you build it. Boom, I'm going to advertise it. Boom, I'm going to advertise it. Each turn you can do that. So that was something we did wrong on the first time we played through this. The other thing that you can do is you can advertise all your rides at one time. Just save up that money and boom, hit it all at one time. So that's something there where you can easily be behind in points and then all of a sudden, oh yeah, here's 20 bucks. I'm advertising my whole park and get a big (laughs) chunk of points right then and there. That is such a big game changer because you got to stop and think, do I want to spend the money now for advertising and not get something else for the next turn? Do I want to buy something the next turn, get the money from that, and then advertise everything at one time? There is a nice little strategy with that, with figuring out when you want to get the points, how you want to move up on those tracks with the awe and the joy and the excitement. That is a very tricky part to try and figure out. So the advertising phase of the game, I really enjoyed that one a lot. So you would say that the meat comes from the economic play, specifically in the converting cash to points yes. when advertising. Very Fair much so. Scott, tell me about the replayability and variability of Ten Penny Parks. Well, there's a limit to how many times you can play it. But then there's many games that you have that same thing. You can play it so many times and you get tired of it. But this one is one that is easy enough to get into that you really enjoy. And you're going to be playing it a lot. The variability. This is a perfect game for them to have expansions for. Um, This is one that they can easily give you 10 new rides to add into the game. You can add a few more concession stands. There's a lot of variability that can be built into this game. But the base game that you have right now... You look at the number of rides, you're thinking five rides, and there are six different types of rides you can put out there. Oh, we're going to go through this in no time. I'm sorry. I did not get past five rides in my park. Yeah, somebody had an endgame scoring card. uh, Or no, it was our global endgame. If you had uh, like seven rides or more, you got bonus points, and I don't think any of us hit it. No, no. It is one that's very, very difficult to get a lot of rides out there because you are dealing with the trees that are on your board. You can expand and make the board bigger, but those trees are a big thing. So you have to take a turn, a part of your turn, to wipe those trees out 
and then put the the uh, rides in. So you never get to the point where you go through all the rides. Mm-hmm. That's even with a four-player game. You're never going to go through all those rides. So there is still a lot of replayability available in this game. What did you think? Scott, to me, the main variable was the end game scoring, be it the ones that you're dealt or the public objectives. Of course, yes, those rides that show up and when they show up, they are going to change from game to game. But to me, I didn't know that that wasn't groundbreaking enough to alter the the course of the game, the arc of play. I found the replayability in a couple of places. First, the game's quick and enjoyable. Splendor. Splendor doesn't have a lot of variables, Mm -hmm. but it's replayable because it gives you a really nice dose of strategy in a short amount of time. Yes. And while Tenpenny is a way different game, it does the same thing. A lot of strategy in a short amount of time. Second, there are just enough synergistic cards, payoff cards, and shifting tactics from round to round that I don't think that the game is a one-trick pony. Yes, Every play is going to consist of making efficient purchases to raise your marker on the point scoring tracks, but I think there's plenty of simple strategic decisions on how to go about doing it. I'll give you an example. In our game, I never cut down a tree. (laughs) One of my uh, first cards, uh, the personal objective, I had two personal objectives. One of them was uh, cut down at least eight trees or something like that, and the other one was don't cut down a single tree. And I kept that one. I was like, okay, so whenever I need more space, I'm going to expand my park with more real estate. So I never actually went to the arborist to cut down a tree. So I got to effectively ignore that part of the game. That's going to be wildly different next game when I don't have an endgame scoring objective that says don't cut down trees. Maybe I will go to that arborist and start finding out if it is, in fact, an efficient play. So to me, I think it's plenty replayable because of the amount of strategy you get in a short amount of time. The variables are somewhat limited. I would say there are not a whole lot of variables from one play to the next. There's not a whole lot of variables, but the variables, like we say with a lot of games, come from your decisions. So with every game, there are going to be some things that did not appeal to us or might not appeal to you, dear adventurer. Scott, tell me about any downsides you were able to uncover with 10 Penny Parks. Well, the biggest thing with a downside that I look at is, and I hate to say it, the carnival tent it's a great thing to have on there but there are different parts of the carnival tent where you pick out where you're going to be paying face value for the ride or you might get a minus two dollar bonus for buying a ride but when you twist that rondelle there are times it's going to be behind and you're like what is that number back there and you can't really see it so it's kind of like the everdell tree where it's a great addition to the game and gives it, it a can be great, an obstruction. Yeah, it gives it a great appearance on the table, but it's difficult to play nicely with it. So you kind of have to, what's that number back there? What's this? So we found ourselves taking that off so we could see what all the numbers were. And even then, it's not like a game breaker that I'm going to love the game or hate the game. It's mm-hmm. just one of those things that's just more of an annoyance. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. What did you think? What were your downsides, if you had any? Only a couple. And it it was pretty tough because we have to factor in what Tenpenny is trying to be. Scott, if this was marketed as Yido, our our time warp game today, or Mm -hmm. some strategically deep Euro-like barrage, then it'd be different. But the game's like appealing because it's a light midweight worker placement game with a playful theme that's easy to learn and has some charming components. So in that scope, what can we find as a downside? Obviously, if you're yearning for a game to be deeper, 
then after a while, yeah, you're, you're going to be ready for an expansion and not just more cards to buy. I'm talking like a sideboard for stage shows or a sideboard with a few more work or placement spots, something to add some weight. But that's obviously going to be a personal preference. What I did think was a downside was I think there's a huge difference in value for the worker placement spots. Now, I haven't played it enough to say this definitively, but you can place 15 workers for the entire game. Give or take, well, not take, but give a couple more if you get the bonus worker. So somewhere between 15 and, say, 17 workers for the entire game. Concessions are very good. They are very good, and I will place there a lot every game. Okay, so the banker, the banker space gives you what? Three bucks? Was it three bucks or two? Two dollars. Two dollars. That's not enough. It's not enough for the (laughs) the use of a worker. The arborist. It can clear up room for one more ride, but if you just expand your real estate, you have room for two more rides plus probably an additional uh, concession or two. Now that's not to say that more plays might not reveal that these spaces have more value than I'm initially giving them credit for, but early on, it almost feels like the balance of the spaces led me to select some way more than others, and it's going to take a lot to change that. Fair enough. Beat number eight. Was it fun, and who's it for? Uh, Yes, it was fun. This is a fun game. But then again, I'm a person that I'm an absolute sucker whenever it comes to anything with amusement park. Mm -hmm. Uh, Unfair, fun fair, this game, you're building an amusement park. I love that kind of thing. It's just a lot of fun for me. That Mm -hmm. is what I enjoy. So if you're someone that enjoys that type of game, you're going to love this. Who's it for? This is a nice entry-level game. It's not one that comes with a lot of baggage with it that, well, if you know how to play this, that'll make this easier. And then Mm -hmm. it's a little bit of this and you can play that. It's very simple to explain to people how to play it. The player aids are very helpful. It's very easy to get people into playing this game. Absolutely. What'd you think? Was it fun? Yes. For a game that takes a whopping one hour, there is admittedly a ton of game in that box. Scott, you know I lean towards heavy games. I like my depth. Yes. I like uh, I like games that take hours and hours to play. I don't have many games in this sort of non-filler but still compact time frame. And for the amount of time that I'm spending with this game, it doesn't overstay its welcome. I don't find mm-hmm. myself yearning for one more turn either. It isn't going to make my top ten list or anything. It doesn't have that one mechanism that blows me away. But it's fulfilling and fun every time. Now, who's it for? This feels like a game that if I introduce it to a random group of gamers, while some might find it a tad too light, Scott, I can't imagine anyone at a table is going to be like, I didn't like that. It's it's enjoyable. Part of me wants to say that this game is for everyone because it's so appealing in the gameplay and the theme. But let me restate it again. This isn't a deep game. If your group indulges in lengthy Euros, you're going to find this a little bit simple for your tastes. But aside from that, it checks a lot of boxes. Subtle player interaction with the worker placement and those tracks, rotating prices set by a player, and a personal puzzle on your own board, a hint of number efficiency with the attractions you buy and how much you spend on them. To me, I think most gamers are going to really enjoy Tenpenny Parks. I think you nailed it with the one thing you said, this doesn't overstay its welcome, but Mm -hmm. yet it doesn't feel like it's too short. It just hits that sweet spot just perfectly right there. Well, that is 10 Penny Parks. Time to do a time warp. Woo! In 
the strategy game of Yido. Players assume the roles of clan leaders in the city of Edo during the early years of the Takugawa Shogunate. The objective of the game is to amass prestige points, mainly by completing missions. To do so, players must gather the necessary assets and, most importantly, outfox their opponents and prevent them from completing their missions. Scott Yido, speaking of worker placement games after our big Ten Penny Parks review, Yido is a much bigger, grander worker placement game. How do we feel about this one? I had every intention of disliking this game. <laughs> no. Um, you don't. You don't. <laughs> Let me get this out here. No. Whenever we first started doing this, there were a lot of games. I knew what you liked. And you mm-hmm. talked about Yido a lot. And I'm thinking, oh, God, this is going to be another Twilight Imperium or something. And Okay. Twilight Imperium is the best game ever created. Anyway, I'm thinking Yido is going to be something along the lines of that, and it's just, uh, wow. And then we sat down and we played it. And oh my god, that was a delightful experience. I even asked you to play it the next time we got together. I enjoyed it that much. It really was a well-designed game, a fun game. There was so much going on. You weren't just like sitting there going, okay, I'm going to do this this turn. I'm going to do this this turn. Each turn you're looking at, if I do that, I get that. But then I do that, I get that. And you are weighing oh, you're trying to so fulfill those many recipes decisions. on the missions. So many yeah. decisions you're weighing as to what's going to be the best for you. It really it was a fantastic game, and I'm so very happy you introduced me to that game. Now, what did you think? I I'm mean, you, were, you came into it loving the game. How's it stand up to you? And I still do. This game's complex at first, but eventually smooth as butter in the worker placement Euro category. Yido's a work placement game. It plays over 11 rounds. Board has seven districts in which you place your workers. You'll be doing so in order to acquire various items, blessings, and buildings to complete the mission cards that you're drawing throughout play, which are your primary ways to score points. Now, Scott, we reviewed the deluxe version Mm -hmm. that Board and Dice reprinted. The base game's from 2013, and if you're looking to pick up a copy, I think that is a just fine place to start and end. But if you have the opportunity, the the deluxe version is, whoa, man, can I ever recommend it? Not just the components. You've got a co-op mode. You've got a solo mode. Uh, Maybe my favorite change is the events deck. It's not a set deck of cards. The original, Scott, you could go with uh, geisha cards and samurai cards. And geisha cards were nice. Samurai cards could be mean. And some people wouldn't play with the samurai cards. They would only use geisha. But you're supposed to shuffle them all together. This, it has big money. Like, it's got seven or eight different categories of decks, and you can pick two of them. So, okay, guys, we're going to play with disasters and big money. Okay, now we're going to play with group hugs and move the jailer. And you can change your game that way through those random events. You can do it randomly, or you can just choose them out right at the start. You remember when we played, I was like, Steven, give me two numbers between one and eight. And that's what we played with. Really enjoy that portion of the deluxe version. Scott, are we recommending Yido? Uh, I got to say yes. I mean, if you have the opportunity to play this game, please, please play it. I say this a lot, but it scratched my brain in the right way. It worked out beautifully. What do you say? 100%. I had Jason over just a couple nights ago with Mike and the Lobsters, and we end up, what? Oh, geez, what did we end up playing? Uh, Rise of the Gnomes. We ended up playing Rise of the Gnomes, and I had Yido set aside for when we finished 
Rise of the Gnomes, but we weren't going to have enough time. We ended up playing Transmissions instead, but Yido is always going to be one of those near the edge of the shelf or off the shelf waiting for play, and I'm glad to say that I get to play it often. A thematic, deep worker placement game, I'll play Yido every time it hits the table. Hi guys, I'm Andrew Davidson with AsPerMyAbility.com. If you consider yourself a new or experienced board gamer, if you like reading and watching board game content, then As Per My Ability may be something to keep on your radar. We publish articles and videos every week ranging from board game reviews to the more philosophical aspects of what it's like to be a gamer. If you want to keep us in your sights, check us out at aspermyability.com. Our story begins on July 21st, 1861, in Northern Virginia. Wilmer McLean, an elder farmer living on his homestead with his beautiful wife and gorgeous kids, wakes up early to enjoy a cup of black coffee. That morning, old man McLean stepped out on his porch to find that war had broken out in his front yard. Union General Erwin McDowell and his 28,450 troops, along with Confederate General P.G.T. Beauregard and his 32,230 men, were literally blasting and blowing each other to pieces right there on his property. Unfortunately, Clint Eastwood wasn't around to tell the nasty kids to get off my lawn. And so McLean watched in horror and trepidation as the two sides collided to a tune of a collective 4,878 casualties right there in his front yard. Man, and I thought picking up the doggy doo-doo in the front yard was borderline draconic in punishment when I was a child, let alone dead bodies. Oof. What McLean observed that day was the Battle of Bull Run or the Battle of Manassas, depending on which side you were on. Bull Run if you were in the Union, Manassas if you were in the Confederacy. The bloodbath marked the opening shots to the American Civil War, a war that turned friends against friends, brothers against brothers, and Americans against Americans. The war would drag on for four years and cost thousands and thousands of American lives. In fact, the Battle of Antietam saw more than 40,000 casualties by the middle of the afternoon. As every casualty was an American casualty, the Battle of Antietam is regarded as the bloodiest day in American history. As old man McLean watched the fighting from his front porch, he quickly made the decision to take his family and you know, move them away from the bloody war that was to come. He ended up residing in a two-story brick house, otherwise known as the Appomattox Courthouse. Four years later, on April 9th, 1965, General Robert E. Lee, accompanied by Colonel Charles Marshall, arrived on horseback. Now, McLean was there, and he extended his greetings to the two Confederate officers and invited them into his parlor. At about 1.30 p.m., a group of Union officers arrived on horseback. Among them were Lieutenant General Ulysses S. Grant, Major General P.H. Sheridan, Major General Wesley Merritt, Major General George Armstrong Custer, and Captain Robert Todd Lincoln, son of President Abraham Lincoln. General Grant and several of the Union officers entered the parlor where General Lee was waiting. 
For the next hour and a half, Lee and Grant discussed and came to agreement on the terms of surrender of the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia, which, for all practical purposes, ended the long, bloody war. The Civil War, one of the nastiest periods in American history, began in Wilmer McLean's front yard, and it ended in his front parlor. A large part of the Union victory relied on leadership. It took the tough and intrepid nature of the 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, to stand and deliver the Gettysburg Address, carefully monitor military leadership, and on January 1st, 1863, deliver the Emancipation Proclamation, which states, quote, that all persons held as slaves within the rebellious states are and henceforth shall be free, unquote. Now, even though the English Empire abolished slavery like way long before, I still sit, I take a deep breath, and I feel proud to be an American. Okay, okay, so naturally Lincoln couldn't deliver the 13th Amendment with the snap of his fingers. He had a whole host of problems and loads of help from others. The journey of the Emancipation Proclamation is broken down into the far more detail of names, dates, key players, and so on and so on in Steven Spielberg's masterpiece film titled Lincoln. I highly recommend it. With the war ending on April 9th, Lincoln was long overdue for respite. As General Ulysses S. Grant once remarked that Lincoln, quote, had aged 10 years within a single year, end quote. Lincoln, now focusing on reconstructing America with no punitive action or judgment against the southern states, which, you know, quite frankly, was an incredibly bold move. Many Union soldiers and generals who fought and risked their lives wanted to subjugate the rebels, to control them, afraid that an uprising would occur again if a firm hand was not clenched around their metaphorical throats. On April 14th, 1865, just five days after General Lee surrendered at Appomattox Courthouse, Lincoln decided to take in a bit of entertainment by seeing a play called Our American Cousin at Ford's Theater, located in Washington, D.C. And it was there with his family in the private overhead box seating where John Wilkes Booth shot the president in the back of the head with a Derringer pistol. He stabbed Henry Rathbone in the shoulder when he tried to attack Booth. Then he jumped down onto the stage, breaking his ankle, and shouted, Sic Semper Tyrannus, meaning thus ever to tyrants. Booth was able to make it out the back of the theater and make a pretty quick escape on horseback. Historians note that the people in attendance had absolutely no clue as to what they just saw. Naturally, everyone thought it was some elaborate and bizarre part of the play. Like most people, even those of us today living in 2022, they didn't really assume the worst. When you attend a creative endeavor such as a play, you're willing to succumb to the supernatural and bizarre. You're willing to tentatively clap because it's all a part of the show, right folks? That is, until the hair-raising scream of the First Lady sobered everyone in the theater. I can see it like a scene in a movie. The First Lady, not visible from ground seating, but her scream filling the space from the windows to the walls. The president had just been shot. Lincoln was pronounced dead at 7.22 a.m. 
on April 15, 1865, at the age of 56. It is common knowledge that Abraham Lincoln's killer was a struggling actor by the name of John Wilkes Booth, a supporter of the recently dismantled Confederate Army. After shooting the president and making a quick getaway, Booth was hunted down a few days later and died in a shootout, hiding in a barn out in the middle of nowhere. On the plus side, Booth would have died either way, so I guess I understand his intent on opting for a shootout instead of the gallows. Unfortunately, the way Booth died doesn't play well for a national narrative. A grieving country didn't want to catch word that the brute had been shot. They wanted something that they could witness or see play out in the papers. They wanted revenge that they could feel. Allow me to introduce you to Lewis Powell, David Harold, George Atzerod, and Mary Surratt. The three men were co-conspirators with Booth. However, the controversy was with the only female brought up on charges, Mary Surratt. Powell, Harold, Atzerodt, and Booth rented room and stayed at Surratt's boarding house. According to the charges, Surratt was privy to conversations by the men at a large round table in her front parlor. Allegedly, Surratt knew their plans and not only kept her mouth shut, but allowed the men to stay in her establishment while they took their sweet time scheming to have various northern politicians assassinated. Surratt pleaded that she was just a simple woman running a business and had nothing to do with the conversations and purposes of her patrons. Mary had a few things going for her. First of all, she was quite an elderly woman. And second, it was easy to plead deniability since the only accusations came from the three remaining men. She pleaded for a prison sentence instead of public hanging. If she were to be punished, she, being innocent in all this mess, deserved to at least keep her life. And son of a gun, she won. Five of the nine military commission voted to lock her up for whatever time she had left on this earth. The commission granted a different sentencing, though, on June 30th, 1865. The newly established President Andrew Johnson absolutely refused the ruling, saying, quote, she must be punished with the rest. She kept the nest that hatched the egg, unquote. Despite all pleas and appeals, on July 7th, 1865, all four conspiracy members were publicly dropped through a raised platform and hung. The bailiff read out the charge. The commission do therefore sentence her, the said accused, Mary Surratt to be hanged by the neck until she be dead at such time and place as the President of the United States shall direct. Other than the releasing of the boards, that would be the last thing Mary Surratt would hear. In Tom Butler's game, Unforgiven, the Lincoln assassination trial, two players assume either the prosecution or defense in the most controversial trial of the 19th century, the trial of Mary Surratt. Now, the objectives are self-explanatory. The prosecution works towards a guilty verdict by swaying the military commission, while the defense pulls the rope the other way towards an innocent verdict. 
From here on out, my review will simply just refer to the game as Unforgiven, not to be confused with the Oscar award-winning 1991 Clint Eastwood movie that, while it's a country-western film with absolutely zero bearing and relevance on the game to be discussed, it sure is a fine, fine film. Gosh, I highly recommend it. Anyway, back to our task at hand. First, the presentation. Everything in Unforgiven is top-notch. Cards, there's the juror tiles, the dice that are thick, the board. The artwork is fantastic as it depicts realistic color drawings of actual individuals from history. The board is small, but it looks superb and it's very functional. In fact, the board helps new players with iconography delineating where the pieces go and what particular actions affect specific aspects of the board state. Very nicely done. Now, there are a lot of moving parts in Unforgiven. However, the main mechanism is card drafting from a randomized tableau of cards. Players lay out cards on the table in a very distinct pattern, depending on the trial phase and are only permitted to draft cards provided the card in question is not buried underneath other cards. Once all the cards are gone, then you lay out the next set of cards. There are three trial phases before the game is over. That is, providing a player does not achieve any victory condition before then. For gamers that have ever played and enjoyed Seven Wonders Duel, this process is going to feel very, very familiar to you. This card drafting tableau system is a tried and true method. It makes for an incredibly tight game as sometimes players have to hate draft cards simply to keep them away from their opponent, but yet losing their turn. At its essence, Unforgiven is a game of tug of rope. Players draft cards to affect the game state in various ways, or if they feel the timing is right, by pulling the marker closer to winning the favor of one of the specific jurors that's been assigned to them. Unforgiven is a tight game that throws players kicking and screaming to suffer the mental slings and arrows of strategically egalitarian moves on their turn. And sometimes, if a player is feeling indomitable or perhaps at the tail end of polishing off a six-pack, they will make extremely risky plays that may or may not pay off depending on how their opponent spends their turn. Unforgiven is nothing like chess. However, it scratches that same strategic itch in your brain, as players must be prudent and dynamic with their strategy, or else it will be a pretty short game and one hell of an ending to put in the history books. My name is Andrew Davidson. I hope I have given you something to think about. It's been a while since we heard from our Archmage Andrew. Today he's talking Unforgiven, the Lincoln assassination trial. Fascinating history surrounding not only the trial, the beginning and ending of the Civil War in the same guy's front lawn. You can't make that up. I remember taking a uh, class in Civil War in college, Mm -hmm. and it was, they call them DOS, Distribution of Studies classes. Mm -hmm. But it was so interesting getting into it. I found myself just getting drawn into it and all the things that went on. It's a horrible time in history, but still, it's such an interesting part to read about and see what happened. And seeing that games allow you to learn about this stuff that's a whole new outlet that people don't really think the games can do sometimes. 
I love that Mary Surratt went with the my mom's defense. <laughs> I'm just a little <laughs> old lady. I had nothing to do with this. <laughs> oh, I could picture boy. my mother doing that. No, I'm I'm just feeble. <laughs> Oh, Andrew, thank you so much for both the fascinating history behind the game and your analysis of Unforgiven, the Lincoln assassination trial. Getting that one squarely in the middle of my radar. Oh, my, yes. Speaking of squarely in the middle of the radar, Scott, we got Gen Con around the bend, and we're going to highlight some games that we are getting all kinds of amped up for. You ready? I am all set, even though... uh I uh, won't be there, and uh, I'll be living vicariously through your posts. Well, you know, uh, I I already know you're going to send me a list of the games that you need me to buy. Okay, so I said to Scott. (laughs) That's behind the scenes stuff. Heather, turn off the show right now. (laughs) And I said to Scott, dude, we got to pick out, like, each of us need to pick out four or five games that we're really looking forward to. (laughs) <laughs> oh my! Yes. You're not being able to go. I know. I know when you were making your list because I started getting messages. Hey, you might have to buy this for me. Hey, you uh-huh. might have to buy that. For- you know what? I'm just going to make you a list. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah. I, I ended up my uh, list of three or four is actually a list of about fifteen. Of course, but I narrowed it down. As did I and Scott. I'm going to cheat twice when listing mine. One right now. And one at the end of our list says both of them deserve mentions. My cheat right now is that I want to point out Lunar Rush again. I'm all set to play oh. with Will and Ryan. Teacher Ryan's coming with me. We're going to be buddying up. He's going to join Will and I and Games Designer. We talked with uh, Skippy last week. Skippy's yes. going to get in the game with us. So as we talked about that meeting of the minds, I'm looking forward to it. If you didn't listen to our Lunar Rush side quest, go back to last week's episode or at least check it out on BGG. Google the game anything because i'm telling you this isn't one you're going to want to miss that's it the first of my games that i am looking forward to terracotta army did you see that one? Oh no i missed it i mean i know that they dug one up but uh, i didn't see the game for it <laughs> all right well it comes from board and dice who typically produce higher complexity games that i've come to enjoy uh like well we did origins first builders not that long ago as one of our yes. uh, board and dice. okay well more specifically though what caught my eye for this game is that it's designed by adam klapinski who's done some very impressive games like the aforementioned origins and nemesis and nemesis lockdown mm. theme and gameplay so i'm gonna go right from BGG, Emperor Qin Shi Huang has passed away. To protect him in the afterlife, a great army in the form of statues of faithful warriors must be assembled to stand guard in the Emperor's tomb. You will be among those tasked with building this magnificent army. Now that's a different theme. Yeah. In Terracotta Army, you represent talented craftsmen and artists laboring to build the most wondrous assembly of statues. During the game, you collect resources, upgrade your workers, and seek favor with the Emperor's advisors. Your goal is to play a crucial role in the process of creating the Terracotta Army, and your success is measured, of course, in victory points. During the game, you and your fellow players build the army together, but after the fifth round of the game is over, only one of you, the one with the most points, will stand as the winner. And you know what this gives me some shades of, some vibe? What's that? The Great Wall. Oh. It says in there, you and your fellow players are building the army together, but only, not just theme. Okay, obviously Great Wall. Right. Not just the theme, but it sounds like, okay, resource gathering, upgrading workers, even five rounds of gameplay. I know it's variable at Great Wall, but typically five with our player counts. I'm guessing that they're going to be wildly different in their execution 
there aren't many pictures for Terracotta Army right now, so I'm kind of going in blind, going off the uh, the designer, the publisher, and yeah, what I know from Great Wall, and hopefully come out please on the other side. The first game I'm listing is game I'm looking forward to, Terracotta Army. Very cool. Yes. I, I don't really have a list of these in order as to oh, mine, the most exciting. Mine's in no order. No, it's it's the first right. one that I wrote down. That's not a, uh, this is my most excited. It's just but the order in which I'm reading them. <laughs> but. But. This one does really kind of trigger my acquisition disorder really nicely. All right. This game I'm really looking forward to is designed by Kevin Hamano and artist by Beth Sobel. Ooh. Published by Floodgate Games, and that is Kites. I am a huge fan of kite flying. I absolutely love it. The more strings I can have on my hand directing the kites, it's all the better. I mean, I've gotten to the point where I've flown like a four-string kite, and it's absolutely wonderful. I love it. But from the Board Game Geek, the sun is shining, the wind is blowing, and you know just what to do. Gather your friends to fly some kites. In kites, everyone works together to keep all their kites, represented by colorful sand timers, in the air. Take turns playing cards, flipping the sand timers, and coordinating with other players to ensure none of the timers run out. If it does, a kite has crashed. Hmm. So it's six different timers out there that you're working with and playing cards to make sure that these timers don't run out. The artwork is gorgeous on it, very colorful. Like I said, all oh, right, so these are normal kites with one string. Uh, but still, a one-string kite is better than no kite at all. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I'm really psyched about this one. I know Teacher Ryan's talked about it a couple times with us. I am really looking forward to this, and it's 20 bucks. I mean, oh, well, heck. you can't beat something like that. So, yes. You'll be going to Gen Con with a 20 in your pocket for this game. So definitely. Scott, I'm going to send you a picture. After I buy it with your $20, I'm going to send you a picture of me licking the game box and seeing if you still want it. <laughs> you sick bastard. <laughs> Scott, next one on my list is Circadian's Chaos Order. This one comes from Garfield Games. And uh, again, much like Terracotta Army, I know basically nothing about it except that it looks like a big old area control euro mashup that's going to fit in just right with the lobster group uh, one of the draws here is that sj mcdonald is credited as a designer and other credits for sj mcdonald include the entire west kingdom trilogy which i think quite highly of Asymmetric True. factions with their own ways of winning the game the pictures available on bgg show some great components and quite honestly that works right up my alley it's like space comic book Looking forward to seeing what's going on with Circadian's First Order. Yeah, I saw that listed in the games coming out at Gen Con. Mm -hmm. And it was something that you look at the cover and it it draws you in. You aren't sure why, but it's it looks really, really kind of cool. Well, hopefully we can find out why while we're there. You tell me, what else do you got tickling your acquisition oh, right. disorder? Here we go. This is me horribly, horribly mutilating names uh, uh, uh. <laughs> designed by Giacomo Santo Pietro and Gianluca Santo Pietro published by Galacta and artist by Alan D'Amico and Demise Savini this is the shadow planet the board game you know you did pretty well with that pronunciation honestly you you got Alan right 
I'll give you that one. Yes, yes, yes. I That was the tough one. But from <laughs> BGG, in a strange and remote regions of space, death may not be the worst end. A group of astronauts on a rescue mission lands on a desolate planet to learn the fate of a long-lost scientific vessel. With little over a day to investigate what happened, they discover that the planet itself and the encountered survivors hide horrible secrets that might endanger humanity. Now, it's a sci-fi game of alien horror based on beautifully illustrated graphic novel, the author's responsible for Letters from Whitechapel. Mm-hmm. It perfectly blends the idea of hidden identities with a completely revolutionary approach to deck building genre. The look of this, I am a sucker, absolute sucker for like the 1950s, 1960s sci-fi movies. Oh, I absolutely got that. Love them. But looking at this, it really looks like the one movie Planet of Vampires. Mm-hmm. If you've never seen it, watch that movie. That is just so much stupid fun. It's worth watching that movie. But just the look of it and that you have six different astronauts that you're doing things. I love one card is a picture of a woman with her hands across her top. And it says your character ability is canceled by Jenna Scott until the end of this round. Well, you evidently have walked in on Jenna Scott and you're stunned. So you lose a turn. Uh, It's just hysterical. I think it's funny. It looks like a fun thematic game. I don't know what the gameplay is going to be like or anything, but looking at it, it just looks like a fun game. Yeah, it's saying hidden roles, semi-cooperative. It almost feels like, okay, sci-fi horror, maybe a little bit of nemesis, a little bit of dead of winter, something of that ilk. Uh, Yeah, no, this one was in my short list of, you know what, I hope he picks it because I want to highlight it. It looks cool. Yes, the Shadow Planet, the board game. Next one I picked out is Dawn of Ulos from Thunderworks Games, who, I mean, having reviewed a trio of their games now and not been disappointed with any of their library to this point, I want to know what's going on here. Now, designer Jason Lentz doesn't have any credits to his name on BGG yet, but at this point, you know what, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt because Thunderworks signed the game. They tend to put out good designs. Now, uh, Keith's been making it a point to publish games that aren't fantasy, so it's to not be thought of like the one-trick pony kind of... Co- oh, that's the company that does all the uh, uh, the cartographers and, and role-player stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, he's So he put out Cape May. You know, he, He's putting out some things that are different. Tenpenny Parks, today's review game, for example. Yes. This is an economic tile-laying game. Set in Ulos, which is from the role-player and cartographer's world, sure, you play as gods, investing in factions and pitting armies against one another. Kind of comes across like a War of Whispers style of game where you have these Mm. factions at war, but not the players directly. You care about certain factions winning, and you actively push your influence behind them, but you don't directly declare an attack a la Axis and Allies or Risk. Honestly, Scott, it's a style of game that I haven't played enough of. And when you pair that with my trust in Thunderworks to give a good experience, why aren't we on Thunderworks payroll yet? I feel like <laughs> yeah, I know, give I know. me a dollar. Uh, <laughs> anywho, I am quite excited for uh, for finding out more and playing Dawn of Ulos. Yeah, that one was on my short list as well because yeah, everything that I found that's tied in with that fantasy world that they have has been a lot of fun. My next one, you might see a little bit of a theme, but my next game that I have here is designed by Matthew O'Malley and Ben Rossett and published by Artana, and that is First in Flight. Now, this one is a push-your-luck deck-building game about the race to early flight. 
Players take on the roles of the Wright brothers, Samuel Langley, and other flight pioneers, racing to build and pilot the flyers that preceded modern airplanes. Okay, so like that bicycle with the wings all over. <laughs> We've all seen exactly. the black and white. Okay, oh yeah. Okay. So looking at this, flying is uh, a blackjack-style challenge to test the design, break new records, and gain experience without crashing. Mm -hmm. Then players head back to the workshop to refine their flyers and improve their chances on future flights. Those type of games, like uh, the one I'm thinking of, Leaving Earth, where you're building up and you have things that blow up in your face, but you have to go back to drawing board and try over again. Yeah, you learn your lesson. I love it. And the artwork in this is absolutely gorgeous with all the, the different flyers and how far you're going to be going. Really looks like a lot of fun. Doesn't look very deep, but it still looks like one that's going to capture my imagination and keep me coming back to it for quite a bit. I'll tell you what, Scott Matthew O'Malley, the design one of the one of the co-designers, has done the search for Planet X, Between Two Cities, and Between Two Castles of Mad King Ludwig, all very highly regarded games. His co-designer Ben Rossett gets credits on those games as well, and Brew Crafters. We love Brew Crafters. Mm. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I mean, it's a, a, a great repertoire of games they have there, so I can't see it not being a winner. Scott, the last one that I wanted to bring up, and I said this was kind of cheating as an honorable mention, but uh, I saw that you had four on your list, and I only picked three. So my last one was to be the honorable mention. will slot in here. <laughs> <laughs> my Little Pony Adventures in Equestria. Oh, all right. That gets an O all right. Uh, hey, hey, I, I'm not the Mud Little Pony fan that you are, so I I, <laughs> I, I don't have much to say there. We got a game for one to four players that plays in about an hour, hour and a half. Canter into the cooperative My Little Pony Adventures in Equestria deck building game and take the role of a pony of Equestria. As Twilight Sparkle, Rainbow Dash, Fluttershy, and more, you've been given a challenge to complete. You need to travel amongst different locations throughout Ponyville. Get new cards to improve your deck, complete tasks for resources, and overcome obstacles. Watch out! If you take too long, clouds will build up over time and cause you to suffer setbacks in your quest. The ponies will have to work together using teamwork and friendship to win the game. Play cards from your hand to generate help, move, and info, and use those to purchase more powerful cards, accomplish tasks, and overcome hurdles. <laughs> okay, so this is not being put in here as a spoof, Scott. Look... When I was little, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was my show. I uh, watched it. All right. Okay, so for you, you're Scott. Spoiler: Scott is older than I am. You're probably before He Man. What was what was your cartoon growing up, Scott? Uh, and I mean, like cartoon. when you were five. I really can't remember, like whenever I was five. But being in elementary school, like eight, seven, eight years old, mm -hmm. my cartoon was Battle of the Planets. Okay. That was the one I would rush home as quick as I could in order to get home to watch it. So we all have that show that connected with our our, our youthful self. For oh, people my, yes. a little bit older than me, it's going to be He-Man. And people that are a little bit younger than me, it's probably going to be Power Rangers, right? Everybody's got that one. 
I watched Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles religiously. And if the turtles were on, my brain was shut off to everything else. And <laughs> now in my late 30s, and frankly, I never thought I'd care about My Little Ponies. Uh, but what Turtles was for me, My Little Pony is, or was, for my daughter. She has seen mm. every episode in the Friendship is Magic series multiple times. She's watched the <laughs> movies. And inevitably, being a stay-at-home dad, that means I've seen them all multiple okay. times as well. No, and I ain't going to BronyCon or anything, but the cartoon is – yes, BronyCon is a thing. <laughs> Bronies oh, yes, are yes. The, the guys that like – not just like boys that like My Little Pony, but like adult men that enjoy My Little Pony. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I feel about that, but we won't go and <clears> – Anyway. <laughs> the cartoon is excellent though. Uh, Scott, they've got unique personalities, problem-solving, conflict resolution, comedy – it's not going to appeal to adults, no. But for a cartoon for children, it teaches a lot of lessons in a fun and appealing way. And because of my daughter's love of it, which, like I said, has has dwindled a little bit of late, it's a show that's always going to have a place in my heart. Enter this deck building game. Yeah, I'm sure it's probably going to sit on my shelf and maybe get a solo play once or twice. Maybe we'll talk about it in a recent adventure. But it's going to sit on the shelf proudly, waiting for the day that my daughter says, what's that? <laughs> that sounds absolutely wonderful. And now I can't say there's anything wrong with that because looking at Origins, you see a game Cat in a Box. And it sounds kind of kiddish, but that was like the hot game of Origins. So you don't know what this is going to be. This could be amazing gameplay tied in with it. So you just don't know. Well, we do know that it's based on an IP that's directly whose whose biggest audience is five year old girls predominantly. That is that's the majority of their their viewership. I'm sure. <laughs> Patrick, I'm trying to go positive with this. Okay, okay. Well, <laughs> I'm telling you what I can name ponies in. Like I know the extended multiverse of My Little Pony. Friendship is met. You can put a pony in front of me. I don't even need to see its cutie mark. Yes, that's a thing. <laughs> I can tell from the colors of that pony who it is. Scott Hooks, <laughs> I'm just glad to know that I'm not the one with an embarrassing sound bite for this episode. Uh, great with white so. hair. That's Derpy Pie. I, I know all. I know all of the Pie family. All right, let's let's leave that at that. Scott, tell me one more game. What you looking forward to at Gen Con? Designed by TC Petty the Third and published by Renegade Games. Oh, I know what is it is. My father's work. Yeah. In my father's work, players are competing mad scientists entrusted with a page from their father's journal and a large estate in which to perform their devious experiments. But they have to balance study and active experimentation because at the end of each generation, all of their experiments and resources are lost to time until their child begins again with only the journal knowledge and estate they have willed to them. Mm. And it just feels like it's a, a hammer horror movie in a board game. Yeah. Once again, I'm going back to old time movies, like from the fifties and sixties. All this needs is like a voiceover from Vincent Price and it'd be absolutely <laughs> perfect. It, it has a spiral bound book in the middle. So you've got all these different pages to flip through with different adventures to go on. You could have the town folks rise up against you with their torches and pitchforks. So many different things going on with this. It just looks like a fun 
very thematic type of game. You see the pictures on BGG? Oh my, yes, yes. I'm looking at that right Looks now. Looks deluxe. I tell you what, I know this one started shipping to backers and I started seeing pictures a month, month and a half ago. And everyone was like, oh no, they, they put it out, but they don't have the app ready. Like you had to go on the website to actually play mm. the game. Yes, it has. I get to play the clip again. This game has a companion app. <laughs> <laughs> But, but I'm still all for it. It looks great. Well, I understand that uh, iOS has the – I'm not certain of this. I, I I don't have an iPhone, but I understand that the My Father's Work app is available on iOS and soon to be on like the Google Play Store and the, the Android systems as well. Scott T.C. Petty the third is the designer. You know what else he did? G.I. Joe, the deck building game. Well, that explains why I'm in because I know I have that second expansion coming to me shortly. Well, Adventures, that's some of the things that we're looking forward to at Gen Con. I'll just throw out a reminder, if you're going to be at Gen Con, come meet me at the Board Game Tables booth. I'm going to be there on Friday from 10 to 2 and Sunday from 10 to 1. I'd love to show you some of the sweet games that Board Game Tables has. Also, if you want to learn how to play After the Empire, probably, uh, well, we both had it in our top three of standout games from Origins for us. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be there Saturday, 3 to 5 at the Brotherwise Games booth. I'd love to meet you guys and you know, find out about the folks listening to the show. Scott, we still got to do our top five of the most recent 10 games that we've reviewed. Yes, let's get to it. We've done it. We have reviewed 10 more games in this vast cornucopia of games that are out in the world. Now, one of the things we like to do is once we've done 10 games, we like to go back and see the top five games we thought of those past mm -hmm. uh, 10 games. Because so many times, if we went through the entire year and you go back and look at it, you forget how to play certain games. So we want to keep it whenever it's fresh in your mind, how things go. Yeah, things mesh so, together. That's true. Let me go through the games that we had reviewed yeah, that we're going to pick from. We have 10 Penny Parks. We have The Hunger, Veiled Fate, Meeples and Monsters, Glow, Lockup, Summit, Return to Dark Tower, Great Wall, and Earth. Okay. So those are the 10. Now, each of us have to pick five. I have um, five and a half, maybe. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but hey, I'm one of the co-hosts here, so I get to break uh, the rules. You are allowed, and the king. You want me to lead it, yes. or do you want to lead it? Oh, why don't you lead it? Okay, my number five. This could have been any one of Lockup, Glow, or Ten Penny Parks, but I'm going to go with Lockup. Lockup from Thunderworks Games, worker placement game with that sort of blind bidding placement of workers. The game sings. It plays in just the right amount of time. We had a chance to play with the Breakout expansion. There's a lot of thought put into every play. I really enjoyed Lockup. Mine's going to be a little bit different. All right. Mine, this is where I break the rules because this could go either way with either Tenpenny Parks because I really enjoyed it. Yeah. But then I haven't had a chance to go through it that many times to see if it would have been any, any higher. The other one I have here is The Hunger. Oh, okay. The Hunger was just a fun game. I really enjoyed the push your luck aspect of how far do you want to go out and hunt down humans? Wow, when they say that out loud, it just sounds really, <laughs> really odd. You go out, you're hunting humans, you're feeding on them. But wait, it's getting close to dawn. I got to get back to the castle. A lot of fun aspects to this game. It may not be a perfect game, but 
it's fun, and I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed my time playing it. You know what? Another good reason for why we do the top five of our most recent 10, we had a review of The Hunger. Jimmy, Jimmy messaged me, and he goes, wow, you guys really ripped up The Hunger. And I had to mention back, I was like, oh, no, we just, there were a lot of things, like, we concluded that review by saying, yes, this is a good game. This is a fun game. There's just a lot of Mm holdups. This is where we can actually hammer it home and say, you know what, of those 10, Scott thought the hunger was in the better half. Exactly. Scott, my number four, we had a chance to get a game ahead of schedule. While it was live on Kickstarter, we got the prototype copy of Earth. Now, this has since been passed along, so it's not like we got, got a game for free, so I'm hyping it up. Earth is a game that kind of reminded me of Terraforming Mars, but with a tableau and like Terraforming Mars meets Wingspan. It's kind of hard to describe, aside from the fact that you are evolving your i don't want to say a habitat you're you're sort of you're building a terrain you're putting plant life together on that four by four grid off to the left there's actions Mm -hmm. like an i choose and everyone follows minimal downtime lovely component did i just say lovely you know i used to listen to a podcast and the guy would always describe things as lovely and i made mental note i'm never (laughs) going to call things lovely on the show but i got myself doing it last week Awesome components. So let's go with that. Awesome components uh, from a fantastic company too. Earth from Inside Up Games. That was my number four. All right. My number four was one that we did not too long ago. Mm-hmm. And that was Meeples and Monsters. Yes. The whole bag building concept of putting your workers out, your warriors out, taking all the different actions it was just a fun time. It was a deck builder without a deck. Bag builder. Oh, yes, yes, yes. A bag builder. And going through it, you have so many different decisions to do. There's just a lot in this game that it allows you to breathe. And I really thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed Meeples and Monsters. I had that one on the table at the meetup at the vault last week, and the vault had two copies. And the people that I was playing with made sure that they snagged up those two copies immediately after oh, the fantastic. play. So if that doesn't tell you about a game, <laughs> I don't know what. There Scott, you go. My number three is Meeples and Monsters. So I'm not going to uh, belabor the point, but some of the things that I love about the game is whenever you pull those meeples out of the bag, you have so many decisions. Sometimes they're a little bit restricted because you don't want to take on more white meeples from going to where there's monsters. So what do I do with this blue? I can place them here. I can place them there. <gasps> I could upgrade my, my worker so that from now on, whenever I pull out my blue token, he does something different. Or my red one and all the different color meeples do something different absolutely love the unique meeples. They have that paladin, the purple meeple. They got the, um, oh, not the witch doctor. I forget what they call it. There's the orange one and then the ranger, the green meeple. They all fight different. And man, I tell you what, by the end of the game, everybody is going to have a remarkably different setup, all pursuing the same goal. I thoroughly enjoy meeples and monsters. What's your number three? My number three was one that you just mentioned. That was Earth. Did we do the old flip-flop? Uh, <laughs> we did do the flip-flop. There was a lot of things going on with it, but it was very simple. It was one of those games where you get that engine going. Mm-hmm. And boy, once you get that engine going, it starts chugging along. It is a lot of fun. It's one that you can go into it and you see the amount of cards that are in there. And you could immediately look at it and like, Oh, dear God, we're going to be lost in this. What have I got myself into? You get into it and you realize it's really quite simple to get this game started and get into playing it. 
it's just another great game in Inside Up's library of games. Earth was my number three. Number two, I'll spoil it, Scott. We both have the same thing. Our number two is Return to Dark Tower. Tell me why you like Return to Dark Tower. The reason I liked Return to Dark Tower, number one, I like the nostalgia. Number two, I love the aspect of you're not just this superhuman hero going up against this tower. You have to build a freaking army. Yep. To take this thing on. So you're getting upwards of 100, 150 soldiers behind you to go. And that just makes such a great story. Whenever you go up 150 soldiers against the tower and you just got blown (laughs) away. They can. It just really builds a great story while you're playing it and a lot of fun. Why, Why did you have it at number two? Well, I love that the tower is really interactive. Removing the panels to reveal the glyphs and putting the skulls in there to end the turn, I thought was a pretty clever use of it. I love the app in this game. And I'm, I don't mm-hmm. hate apps and games. We know that. But I think that they implemented it so well. It provides you with multiple different modes of play. It calibrates the difficulty of the game based on your selection and your player count. And the game's yes. got, it's got like a, it's got a deluxe feel to it. You know what I mean? Like the mm. minis look cool. I think they have the wash on them, your player board, like everything about it feels like, oh, we're not playing a game right now. We're having an experience. And I really like that. Yes. That said, let's get to number one for me. It was The Great Wall. And it is a great game. Holy smokes, the amount of variability from your leader to your advisors that you have at the start of the game, and then how you opt to place your workers, how you opt to implement your strategy, how to pursue a win. It's so vast in this game. There are times where you have Mm -hmm. to work together. Are you going to try and fight off the hordes? Are you going to stick back and upgrade your overseers? There is a ton going on in the game. It's always going to follow the same arc of play. And yet the way that you go about it is so very different. Each time I can see the Great Wall getting back on the table regularly. I just got to make it a point to get over to Nikki's basement (laughs) to play it more because that was her (laughs) copy. Scott, what is your number one Uh, game in the most recent 10? My number one was your number five, and that was Lockup. Mm -hmm. There was just something with this game. Whenever it came out, it kind of got lost in the different things that were coming out. So whenever we had a chance to play this, I was just, ah, this might be kind of fun. But yes, like you said, the blind bidding and where you want to go do it. And, oh. Yeah, by the way, I'm going to run the yard and be the big muscle guy. That's just hysterical saying yeah. I'm going to run the yard. The artwork to it, the look of the game, the playing it, the breakout expansion adds just that tiny little bit more that mm-hmm. makes it that much more thinky. It was an absolute delight to play that game and find out how much good stuff was really hidden in that game. One that could have gotten lost, but having a chance to play it, it really stood out to me. So there you go, the top five of our most recent 10, and we start the next 10 next episode. Scott, as for this episode, we got to wrap things up. Oh, I know. My, my throat's almost gone. Episode 67, drawing to a close. We're going to finish this one off the way that we always do, Scott, and that's talking about how we leveled 
up. When we started this yes. show, we always, you know, let's let's find a way to make the end of every episode a level up. Talk, and this this isn't so much for like it's not a humble brag thing or anything like that. It's just maybe a way of keeping accountability on ourselves to always be improving. Sometimes we talk about how we've done it in life or something to that was just delightful for us, but oftentimes it has to do with gaming. So for me, for this episode, the level up is kind of for the podcast, man. A huge meetup with over 40 gamers gathering at, at this little town in Greens. I mean, oh my goodness, that was so awesome having that many people coming in. Oh no, I heard you last episode. Oh, I know that you like this one, but stay away from that one. And, and getting to play with people that I haven't played, seeing people that I only get to see at the meetups. I feel like if there's yep. something that I can point to our show and be like, wow, that's a really cool thing that came out of this meetups with meeting all these people. That would be my number one thing. Big old meetup. That's my level up for episode 67. Well, I had a uh, rather bad experience earlier in the year in my acting gigs and everything, and it kind of turned me off to things. But coming up here while you're off at Gen Con, I'm going to be auditioning for a possible lead in a horror movie. So Ooh. this is a big thing, taking a step out there and getting back in, into the acting field. Either way, if I there's two roles I'm trying out for, if I'm lucky enough to get either one of them, I get killed in a really awesome way. So I'm looking forward to it, and hopefully <laughs> this will get me back on the horse and get me back into the acting and... So happy to be back going this direction once again. Adventurers, if you haven't heard our Lunar Rush episode, do go back and listen to episode 66. Hear from Skippy Brown himself all about Lunar Rush. If you're going to be at Gen Con, make it a point to stop by the board game tables demo area from 10 to 2 on Friday and Sunday from 10 to 1. Meet up with me there. I'd love to show you some of their games. Saturday, I'll be at Brotherwise from 3 to 5. Learn how to play upcoming Kickstarter game Empire's End, which we raved about after Origins. I'd love to show it to you. Scott, you get the final word. May the best day of your past be the worst day of your future. I'll see you next time, Scott. You take care. Thank you, adventurers, for joining us for this episode of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. We encourage all adventurers to check out our website at levelupgamepodcast.com. That's where you can submit your thoughts and audio to be used in a future episode. Please consider rating us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and join the Board Game Geek Guild, Guild 3722. Music for the podcast provided by Adam Haynes and the Heatley Brothers. And remember, whether in hobby or in life, always do what you can to level up.